I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Hey, today's guest is Otto Lang. He's a doctoral student at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. He's from the Department of Geography. Peter, we're talking about dust and its effect on snow. We're recording this in January of 2024, and you know, snow is on our mind. Uh, people like to ski on it, but we also really need that snow for the summer because we need our water. So. Right, and you think about it, and you know, we've always been told that a drop of rain needs to form around a particulate of some sort. So, you know, more dust, does that mean more snow? Or, more snow. Or what does that actually mean? Uh, you guys are going to have to stay tuned for the show to learn more about the connection between dust and snow, what it means for our snowpack in the mountains here. Before we get there, though, Peter, I bet you got some nature in the news. Yeah, Leif, today we're going to talk about Cope's rule. And, you know, as I've done some research on this, I'm not sure how good of a rule it is. Cope's rule states that the population lineages tend to increase in body size over geologic time. Population lineages. lineages. So groups of animals that are related to each other yep. over long periods of time will get bigger we'll get as time bigger. goes on. Yes. Okay. Yes. Dr. Roy, who is an ecosystem modeler from the University of Reading, has identified some exceptions to Cope's rule. All right, all right. And he's got three ways that body sizes changes over. Again, when we talk about geological time, this is a very millions long, and millions of yep, years, very right? long time. Gotcha. So there is one where there's a gradual size increase over time, which happens when competition between species is determined mostly by their relative body size rather than the niche differences. And you can look at invertebrate species, jellyfish, et cetera, in the oceans that tend to follow this rule. When you know there's nothing limited other than competition, body size can increase. Another one is size increases that are followed by extinction, where the largest animals recurrently go extinct. You know, it happened with the dinosaurs or you know very large mammals, say, for instance, like the mastodons and the mammoths and such. Sure. And once they overuse their resources and the resources are gone, and then that allows other species to come in and fill into place. Right. And then there's the final one where gradual size actually decreases instead of increases. And this happens when competition is really high, especially if there's an overlap in habitat and resources. So it doesn't benefit the species to have a very large size because there's limiting resources. Right, and it costs a lot of resources to get bigger. They, right, sure. Yep. So whether or not Cope's rule is... It's not a catch-all that works. It's not a catch-all, right. It's not gravity. <laughs> it's not gravity. In biological circles, anytime a rule comes up and somebody thinks they've got a good general statement they can make about all of life, there's always something living that doesn't follow the rules. Yeah, there's an exception. There's, <laughs> there's an exception to everything, right? It's amazing, especially in biology. Yes. Right? And that's why it's a fun science. Well, today we're going to be talking dust. We're going to be talking snow. And our trivia question deals with snow. What is the seasonal record amount of snow recorded at Alta Ski Hill, just outside of Salt Lake City in Utah? What is the maximum amount of seasonal snow that has been recorded up at Alta? 
You're going to be amazed if you don't already know this one. When we come back from the break, Otto Lang joins us. We're talking dust. We're talking snow. Stay tuned. Get continued access to local news and all the programs you enjoy through the Listen Live link at KISU.org. Or try using your web-connected Amazon or Google smart speaker with the command, play KISU. Hey, welcome back from the break. Today's guest is Otto Lang. He's a doctoral student at the University of Utah. He's in the Department of Geography. Thank you for joining us today on The Nature of Idaho. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about Rest on Snow and my research. Right on. Well, let's start, as we always do, You know, tell us a little bit about yourself, Otto, and, and what it is that you do. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Um, so I grew up in Pocatello, Idaho. So I spent a lot of my kind of early childhood um, outside a lot, kind of playing in the mountains. And I've always loved snow. My parents were big Nordic skiers, so I was out skiing kind of in the hills around Pocatello a lot and up in kind of the greater Yellowstone region. Uh, also really like downhill skiing and kind of summer activities. But I never thought of snow kind of as a career path early on. And kind of as I was growing up, I really interested in kind of the landscapes around me and what they mean and how they formed and how they change over time. Um, so that kind of led me to um, study geology um, in college. Um, and I did my undergraduate degree in geology at Fort Lewis College, which is in uh, southwestern Colorado in Durango. So that was a great uh, place to kind of like see real geology in action. I was constantly outside looking at different rock layers, kind of understanding what they mean, going back in time. And kind of at the same time, I was playing a lot kind of in the winter, skiing in the San Juan Mountains, which are just outside of Durango. And there, I really got into backcountry skiing, and I started learning about snow and the snowpack kind of in terms of its risk for avalanches and kind of travel safety. Um, so that was my kind of first introduction at kind of getting into the snow digging kind of a snow pit, digging, you know, through the snow down to the ground and looking at individual snow layers. I couldn't help but kind of draw a parallel between what I was seeing in the snowpack and what I was kind of um, doing for my undergrad research in geology at the time, looking at rock layers. So it's kind of a, a cool connection I, I realized there. And I also noticed that when I was touring or skiing out in the mountains in the spring, that oftentimes the snow wasn't actually white. It was a kind of a browner color or almost a reddish color. And I remember this specifically one spring morning when I was uh, skiing, uh, we thought that the temperatures overnight were pretty cold and we were expecting a really kind of like firm snow surface. I remember within a few hours of the sun being out that that surface was completely like slush. That dirty snow had just completely turned wet and it uh, kind of got me thinking a little bit about what was going on there. Again, mainly in terms of like a safety perspective for traveling out in the backcountry. So I kind of continued on my geology trajectory in terms of education, and I um, went to grad school. I moved up to um, Salt Lake City for grad school, where I was doing my master's in the geology department there. And as I was doing that, I was lucky enough to um, take a class called uh, Snow and Avalanche Dynamics, which was offered by the University of Utah. Um, and I'm going to be honest, at the time, I just took it mainly for fun, because again, I was interested in skiing and great class. We went out every uh, Friday, basically for uh, four hours in the afternoon. And we, we basically, we played in the snow. We dug these huge snow pits um, and we got like really uh, close and personal with, with the snow itself. 
the importance of snow, not just from, you know, skiing perspective or like an avalanche perspective, which it's important there, but also in terms of a, a water resource perspective. And that's when I really realized is like these snow layers, this snowpack is the same thing I'm drinking down the hill. This is the same thing that's coming out of my tap or that's coming out of um, my shower every morning. And that really just, I, I just love the, the idea of basically looking at this like real-time geology in the snow, right? Having these almost these personal connections with these individual snow layers that like you can find places in the snow pit, like, oh yeah, there's a crust there. I remember when the skiing was really crappy because it was warm, you know? So it's kind of this magical experience for me to have this personal connection to what I was looking at, it being essentially real-time geology based on my background. And then also like knowing that this is the water, this is what really matters for life in this region. And so that was kind of my introduction to snow hydrology and how I got to know my current advisor as well. I love it. Mm -hmm. So you connected with a, a professor there at the University of Utah that studies snow? Yes, yes. So um, as I was teaching that class, the instructor of that class is uh, Dr. Mackenzie Skiles. Um, she's my current PhD advisor. Um, she teaches in the Department of Geography. Her and our entire lab group, we study snow hydrology. So we study snow in context of water. How much water do we have in the snow and the rates at which the snow melts? Um, and kind of the motivation behind all, our, all of our research is water resources. So basically the importance of water for the livelihoods of people um, in the West, as well as the natural environment itself. So can I ask a real basic question? Can you walk me through the water cycle of what really happens? So you're in, in Utah, you're in Salt Lake City, and snow falls in the Wasatch Mountain in the ski areas. That snow lands there, eventually it melts, and it goes downhill. I get that idea. But what's the time frame and what are the pathways that that actually takes place in? It's not just freely flowing down the hill, is it? Or is it going into groundwater? What's the time scale? Yeah, yeah. So um, being in kind of northern Utah, um, in Salt Lake City specifically, we're kind of in a unique watershed or a unique basin. Uh, we're in what's called the Great Salt Lake Basin. So that represents all of the land that basically drains into the Great Salt Lake. Um, and most of you probably know this, but the Great Salt Lake doesn't have an outlet to the ocean. So it's a closed system. So all the water that's in the mountains um, in the surrounding region ends up in the Great Salt Lake eventually through some pathway. Um, so it makes it kind of a unique place to study is that what we have in the lake basically re represents what we have in, had in the mountains and how much we've used it as humans and through kind of the natural processes. So yeah, I mean, basically in, in the West, most of our precipitation occurs as uh, snow instead of rain. And so most of our precipitation happens during the winter months. Um, and this builds a kind of a deep snowpack in our mountain regions. Um, and that's where we basically have these high water storage stores. Um, you can think of the snowpack as being our biggest reservoir we have. It's a natural reservoir, but it basically, that water isn't melting until the spring and summer months right? It's being stored up there. Um, that's incredibly important because um, we don't get a lot of precipitation in the West in the summer. I mean, we kind of depend on some of that water remaining as snow and melting slowly as we get closer to those warmer months. That's how we actually end up with water um, during the drier months. So of course, 
there's kind of the pathways um, water gets from being in the snowpack to ending up in streams and eventually through Rachel Lake or the ocean, depending on where you are, is pretty complicated. I'm not an expert in this by any means, but I'm basically one snow melts. Basically, the water comes out of the snowpack itself and it can either run on the surface or it can go into the, the soil water or the groundwater. And eventually that makes it into streams and eventually into larger bodies of water. And there's kind of a lot of interesting, depending on um, kind of drought conditions and how rapidly the snow melts and kind of the timing of snow melt determines on how much um, water we actually end up getting um, downstream and at what rates it ends up getting there. So I've, as we've been discussing this, my brain has been elsewhere thinking about how dust or particulates kind of affect snow, snowpack and melting because we, we know water is a highly covalent bond. And as it snows and you're going to have some gaps in between the snow and as it gets packed, those gaps close in and you know, ice and will form or, or you've got that binding of, of water. What happens when you get something in the way of that? And that's what dust is doing, right? It's kind of getting in between, in a sense, the snowflakes or the water. How does dust affect our snow? When we talk about dust on snow, um, we're referring to when um, these kind of dust events, when they happen, we get these plumes of dust that are coming off um, desert regions. So in, in Salt Lake, and the, these regions are generally what's called the Great Basin. Um, if you're down in Colorado, this represents the Colorado Plateau or kind of the, the red desert areas of Utah and Arizona. Um, so these dust storms, they, they happen a lot in the spring because that's when we have kind of drier areas after the winter. And we have frequent kind of storms with high winds that kind of push these dust storms through. Um, and you can actually see this in the springtime in these regions, right? There's dust in the air. Um, and then you can visually watch the snow change from this really bright, reflective white color to kind of a dirty color. People also just refer to this as dirty snow or muddy snow. Just kind of looks gross. It's kind of similar to what you see if you've ever driven up to on the ski area and looked at snow on the side of the road, right? It's kind of, it's got, it's got stuff in it. It's, it's dirty. Um, and the reason it's important is it kind of goes back to what's actually causing the snow to melt. I think most people, when they think of snow, they think of, oh, it melts because the temperatures are above freezing, um, for example, um, which isn't necessarily wrong, but it, the temperatures themselves aren't the main contributor to what's actually melting the snow. Temperatures are warmer because we're getting more sunlight in the spring and summer. The sun angle is higher. Um, the sun is exposed for longer periods of time. So that's why it feels warmer outside. Um, but what's actually melting the snow is that sunlight. Um, if you've ever gone out on a kind of a sunny um, winter day uh, where the snow surface is really bright and reflective, you know you need sunglasses, right? It's, ex it's incredibly bright. That's because of the the snow's surface basically acts like a mirror for sunlight. It reflects back like over 90% of the sunlight when it's freshly fallen. However, if you basically alter the color of the snow um, by putting dust on it, for example, that snow is now a little dirtier. It's maybe like a brown, a yellowish brown, or a red color. Um, that's actually going to cause the snow itself to absorb more of that sunlight. It's basically heating the snow. It's the same effect that you get if you're going out on a kind of a sunny day with a black shirt, right? You're going to get really hot because that black shirt is going to absorb 
way more sunlight and heat you up way quicker than a white shirt would. Um, so this is what's happening effectively and why we care about dust on snow is because it basically it attacks the kind of the main process by which snow melts. So we get basically a clean snow surface that's reflecting most of the sunlight back. It's not melting very fast. As soon as we dirty that snow surface, we've changed the color of the snow. That snow all of a sudden becomes way more absorptive. It's absorbing a lot more of that sunlight. It's getting warmer a lot faster. It actually causes the snow grains themselves to get a lot bigger, which in turn creates even more absorption. Um, and we call this melt acceleration that happens due to that dust exposure on the surface. I and mean, that's why we really care about dust is because um, it accelerates melt and it pushes back our snow melt timing by up to months um, in certain regions of the Western U.S. Right. And and to come back to that, to the to the water cycle and especially our how uh, water is delivered and stored primarily in the winter. And we want to slowly melt that ideally so that we have it available in the summer dry months. If we melt it off a little prematurely, then we don't have that reservoir of water coming at a time in the summer when we need it, when plants need it, and so forth. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the way I, it always works for me in thinking about this is thinking about kind of this in terms of like the storage reservoirs. We have these like water towers that are up in the mountain. We have our water tower that's um, our man-made reservoirs. And then we have our water tower that's natural that represents basically the entire snowpack. And when we basically shorten our snow season or we shorten the duration of the time that snow is exposed in the mountains, we're effectively decreasing the volume of our natural water tower because there's no longer the storage capacity we have for water in the mountains. We might be getting the same amount of precipitation, but that precipitation may be coming off earlier during the winter months or in, in the early spring where we already have a lot of water and we have less storage kind of going into the summer um, when we really need the water because we're not getting it from the atmosphere. Do increased avalanches have, a, have an effect on water supply during the season? Because again, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, if we've got some of these dust storms coming up in the spring and it accelerates melt, there's also the opportunity for a spring snowstorm, which then covers the the unusually melty snow, which could potentially lead to increased avalanches. Yeah, yeah. So this isn't the, you know, I'm not an expert in, in kind of dust avalanche formation. This is a field that hasn't gotten a lot of work, actually. Um, but I can say that um, dust, because of its warming effect, right, it's going to um, melt the snow um, quicker and accelerate the melting faster than it would without the dust. Um, that's going to cause more liquid water to be in the snowpack, and that has the potential to basically lubricate certain weak layers within the snow, um, potentially increasing avalanche risks in certain scenarios. Um, that's definitely a factor there, especially when you get um, new snow deposited right on kind of a, a really warm, dirty surface um, in those spring months. Um, that's been documented to kind of um, be related to increased avalanche hazard. Definitely. And it's also um, spring snowfall is extremely important in kind of mitigating um, the dirty, the dust impact on snowmelt um, because dust only really affects snowmelt when it's exposed near the surface, right? We can have dust layers in our snowpack. You can see these when you dig a snow pit. They're these kind of really defined dirty layers, but if they're buried deep enough in the snow pit, right, and you get frequent new snow on top of it, 
that melt effect isn't going to happen. So um, spring snowfall is also really important um, in determining how much dust is going to actually influence snow melt. I see the connection here between dust and melting. Is there any indication that the frequency and severity of dust layers in the snowpack, is this changing? Are, are, are we seeing more of it? Is it becoming more of a concern? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think what we know is um, through kind of looking at um, dust that's deposited over kind of thousands of years in these um, infant high alpine lakes, you can actually get a, a sediment pour out of those lakes and look at kind of the dust deposition record through time. I mean, this is work that others have done. There's basically evidence to suggest that, at least in the southwestern U.S. and the Great Basin, basically the amount of dust we're getting in the atmosphere has increased since humans have, kind of western settlement has taken over the region in the uh, kind of 1900s. Um, so this is modern kind of white settlers, um, industrialization, a lot of grazing going on during this time, disrupting the land surfaces. Um, and so you can see a, basically a spike in dust emissions since then. And basically we've been getting, especially in these kind of, in these very common dust regions of Southern Colorado, where we get a lot of dust on snow, um, we essentially get dust on snow every, every year um, nowadays. There's no dust-free year per se. Um, however, there are extreme dust years where basically the weather conditions line up and the drought conditions, et cetera, line up perfectly where we get these really, really high dust years that occur once in a while. Um, but there's actually no defined trend. I've been looking at this record using satellite data and my colleague, Pat Naple, he's been looking at this in the Colorado River Basin and that we know in the last 20 years, there isn't necessarily a defined increase in um, dust, but we know that since kind of uh, modern uh, settlement occurred in the West in like mid 1800s, that dust emissions have significantly increased that this is partially a human cause problem um, due to most likely just land disturbance. We're disturbing these kind of desert regions through um, grazing, through um, all kinds of activities, essentially. Right, and, and making the surface of the ground more susceptible for fine particle sediments to get picked up yeah. anytime there is a storm, right? Exactly. So... I have a question about you know our our future, and I know uh, all scientists are are very um, maybe careful in over speculating about what we imagine is going to happen in the future because it's you know who knows. But based on current trends, you know what does the future of snowpack look like in our western mountains? Yeah, that's a it's an important question. I think. Um, and I think the climate change is a big um, driver, you know, behind what will happen to the snowpack in the future. Um, obviously, you know, I think it's pretty well um, accepted that we're going to get warmer temperatures as a result of climate change. Um, and this is going to influence kind of the snow terrain transition, particularly at lower elevations where the temperature is pretty frequently uh, kind of near or above freezing. Um, so we're going to get less snow simply because it's going to rain more um, and snow less. Um, however, at higher elevations, this isn't necessarily going to happen in the near future because these places are generally pretty cold. And so if you can think of it being an average temperature of about 20 degrees, 
Now it's an average temperature of 23 degrees. It's still going to snow. However, um, where dust really kind of comes in is that it has the potential to basically change how snow melts across essentially all elevations. Um, so even in these kind of climate resilient uh, snow melt snow regions, at least for now, dust essentially also impacts the melts there. So I guess in summary is I think less snow is um, unfortunately <laughs> part of the future. But I, I think, you know, we have um, ways to, um, you know, hopefully dial that back a little bit. Um, and in terms of reducing dust emissions, we can basically disturb our land unless we can preserve land surfaces. You know, talking about the Great Salt Lake, a lot of our dust here locally in Salt Lake comes from the Great Salt Lake, um, those explores lake bed regions. And for example, we could just bring more water to the lake by using less water, and that would significantly reduce um, our dust emissions. So there are uh, ways we could preserve our uh, mountain snowpack going forward, but I think um, less snow is definitely um, in the picture for the future. Let's bring it back to you. You grew up in Pocatello. You you said you went, uh, you know, Nordic skiing, and I'm sure you spent some time up at Pebble. How how do you have a ski day these days? Right, you you know so much more than you did when you were uh, just having fun, and now your place to have fun is also your workplace. I'm curious how those two worlds collide, uh, or or are you able to just kind of turn off the work side and just enjoy the slopes? I think I've enjoyed kind of incorporating the two. I think they kind of feed off each other, especially, you know, like doing a lot of backcountry skiing. I'm out in the snow a lot and I have to think about the snow for fun and for safety and kind of, I enjoy also thinking about the snow for my research. So kind of, I never really see it as a, it like influencing, it never feels like it's sure necessarily when I'm outside in the snow. You know, of course, there's like things I know now. It's like every time I see a dust layer in the snowpack, I'm like, oh no, that's going to like, <laughs> it's going to melt the snow like crazy, you know? So, um, overall, I think I really, I love kind of the combination of play and work. I really enjoy it. I think it's really special to do because uh, oftentimes it goes the other way where uh, work kind of feels like play sometimes. So, you know, I, I look at it as you've developed a much greater appreciation for snow even though you know there's some negatives when you see the dust and all that. But, you know, snow has become more than just something you can ski through. Exactly. Yeah, it's become, you know, this. it's like the source of my, you know, joy in many ways, right? I love the snow. I love skiing in it. I go back home to Pebble and, you know, just, just have a great time, you know, just skiing on the snow. And I want it to be there, you know, for a long time. And yeah, just like the, the the personal connections I can I can make between like what's under my feet when I'm skiing to seeing the agricultural valleys kind of in the in the distance, right? Knowing that they're going to depend on basically this reservoir I'm skiing on currently is is really cool. Um, and it really just I love the how it comes full circle um, for me. That's great. Well, we started the conversation today with a, a question about Alta ski area. And what is the seasonal record amount of snow recorded there at Alta? Yeah, um, I think, I believe it was 903 inches, and that was actually last year. Um, so the last snow season, the 2022-2023 snow season. 900 inches. 
That's incredible. Yeah. So I did yeah. the math. That's 12 and a half of me stacked on top of <laughs> 12 each other. Peters high. Okay. Yeah. But it's not standing on my shoulders. You, I have to stand, stand on, on top head. of my head. Yeah. yeah. So that's a lot of snow over 75 feet. And Otto, we really want to thank you today. And for all of those who are interested in snowpack and dust and our water reservoirs, please um, go to snowhydrolab.weebly.com again that's snowhydrolab.weebly.com and thank you so much Otto for joining us today shows are produced at KISU studios in Pocatello at Idaho State University with editing and production by Ben Graham music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org or from Spotify and other select podcast services send your thoughts and suggestions to noid-kisu at isu.edu